Let's give the Lord a praise. Well, I'm excited tonight to introduce you to people you know well. Uh, Isn't it good to have Scott and Jill and their family here? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's good. I want to invite the Riggins. Come on up, guys. We'd love to hear from you. Share with us what is on your heart. Scott and Jill Riggins. Good evening. We are glad to be back here in Fort Wayne and and, want to, first of all, just say thank you for the support you've shown us as our home church, the way you've remembered us at our birthdays and anniversary and Christmas with your gifts. And, uh, you know, I know that's not an easy thing to keep up with. Believe me, I don't always keep up with it myself. Um, but one of the traditions we seem to have when we come back is to introduce you to a newest, the newest member of our family. <laughs> and uh, this time we didn't disappoint again. Uh, so, uh, as you know, while we were in Papua New Guinea, we had the three boys Aiden, Wiley, and Noah, and then we moved to South Africa, and uh, the Lord finally blessed us with a girl. We had Emma there, and then two years ago, we moved to the Philippines, and in September, Audrey was born. So now we have two girls, and hopefully they're done moving us, because we're... (laughs) But uh, uh, hopefully a new tradition we're going to have is to uh, involve our children in the services from now, and they asked this time when we came back if they could start singing in the service. And we were kind of surprised, but we were really excited that they wanted to do that. And uh, so they're going to come up now and do a, sing a couple songs for you guys. Why don't you come on up? Emma, you going to come? <laughs> Emma teases us each, each service if she's going to come or not. We never know. Uh, in the Philippines, the boys uh, are privileged to go to a school called Faith Academy. It's for missionary kids. So all the teachers there are missionaries. They come specifically to teach our children and are just dedicated to that. And so we're thankful for that. And you can see they've got their Philippine shirts on. These are the, the Philippine flag uh, shirts. They show yeah, you can. And uh, uh, so, but while they're at the school, they, they, they learn reading, writing, math, just like any other school. But they also learn a lot about the Philippines and the culture where we serve. And so uh, one of the things they learn is about the language. It's called Tagalog, and they have learned a couple songs that they would like to share with you. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to let them sing. Do you guys want a mic? The first song is one I think you you know. This is the day. Since you probably know those words in English, they're just going to sing those in Tagalog. Itong araw, itong araw, nagawa ng Diyos, nagawa ng Diyos. Tayo masaya, tayo masaya, abrihin siya, abrihin siya. Itong araw, nagawa ng Diyos, tayo masaya, abrihin siya. Itong araw, itong araw, nagawa ng Diyos. So this, the second song, you may have heard of it, but uh, if, in case you haven't, they'll sing this one in Tagalog and in English so you can hear both, both ways. Iniisigang kung Yesus, oh, oh, iniisigang kung Yesus, oh, oh, 
start this evening in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, going down through chapter 11, verse 1, uh, sort of became a, a bit of a testimony for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And this evening I wanted to share with you a testimony that we have lived together as a family uh, in the last couple of months before we left the Philippines this last time. And some of you maybe followed that journey a little bit and prayed for us. Uh, obviously, with all of our children born overseas, there's a process in coming back to the U.S. Uh, you have to get a passport for the baby before they can travel abroad. And, and there's five steps involved in getting a passport uh, so that you can travel. So the first step is to get the hospital birth certificate. Second step, you take that hospital birth certificate and you get a national official birth certificate for the country. Once you have that, then you take that to the U.S. Embassy and you meet the U.S. Consular and he gives you not a U.S. birth certificate but something called a Consular's Report of Birth Abroad, step three. Step four is to, uh, at the same time that you meet with the consular, he approves you for uh, the, starting the process of the, getting the U.S. passport. When you have the passport in hand, then you get step five, and that's the foreign visa stamped in the passport to say that you're legal and now you can travel. Well, uh, we've done that a few times now and are fairly familiar with that process. With the first four children, it took about two months, start to finish, so when Audrey was born, September 13th, and our target date to leave for our home assignment and speak in churches was, was uh, January the 25th. So we figured we had about four months, a little more than four months, and that was probably enough time. Nevertheless, we got started straight in, straight away on the process, got that hospital birth certificate, took two or three days. There was an extra step in the Philippines of getting a local city birth certificate. That took a few more days. And then we got the official national birth certificate, and that took a little more than two months. So we were a little bit set back, but we still had a couple months before it was time to leave the country, so, so we just kept right on moving. As soon as we had that official birth certificate for Audrey, we submitted things to the U.S. Embassy, and, and they sent us by email an appointment, and we were assigned an appointment to meet the consular on December the 8th. And on December the 8th, a typhoon came through. And you may have heard uh, in 2013, in November of 2013, a super typhoon hit the Philippines, Typhoon Yolanda. And uh, it just devastated the area that it hit in the central Philippines. And so as this, 
a year, about a year later, after Audrey was born, and this second very large typhoon was moving through, uh, people were very concerned. It was going to hit the same area of the country, and, and people were bracing for mass devastation, and they were praying and asking people, and some of you may have prayed for that, joining the efforts to pray uh, that God would somehow either weaken that typhoon or change its course or something. And God did answer those prayers. By the time that typhoon hit us, it was little more than a day of rain. But as a precaution, the city had already decided that they would shut everything down that day. So we missed our appointment with the U.S. Embassy. And we were assigned a new appointment date of December the 18th. So we've lost about 10 days more in the process. But we went ahead and met with the consular. We had everything ready. And he looked at all of our documents and... There are some extra things that they look for in the Philippines. They're trying to cut down on human trafficking and, and trying to, to make their process a little bit cleaner. And so there, there were some things that we had to add to our documents. And he looked at everything that we had and he said, well, you've got everything, but I would like to see more prenatal records. So not wanting to lose any more time in the process, we drove straight that day from the embassy back to the hospital, gathered everything that we could and had it ready to submit again to the U.S. Embassy. You can't just take it back yourself or send it through the post. You actually have to use their courier service. So we called that courier service. They said, we will come pick that up and deliver it for you on the 20th, which was Saturday. So now we've lost through the weekend. And then it was the week of Christmas, and Christmas is pretty big in the Philippines. So by the time the week of Christmas hits, there's nothing happening. Everything is shut down. It's the holidays. After that, it was New Year's and Still, the holidays and everything was closed. And so finally, on January the 7th, I called the U.S. Embassy. We had not heard anything from them. And I, I inquired about the passport for Audrey Riggins. And they informed me that, yes, they had received our paperwork. It was still on the consular's desk. He had not approved it yet, but they had received it. And uh, we were <coughs> waiting to purchase our tickets until we had that passport in hand. And we didn't want to lose a lot of time here. So on January the 8th, the very next day, I called the U.S. Embassy again and asked about the passport for Audrey Riggins. And, and she said, uh, yes, uh, the consular just approved it today. So I, he's working on the certificate of birth abroad, and he's going to send everything else to the U.S. for printing of the passport. Please allow four to five weeks for that process. And I thanked her, and I hung up the phone, and I called Scott. And we know from our experience that typically, once the consular has approved things, it doesn't take more than two weeks. Even though it does have to go to the U.S. for printing, and they tell you it takes four to five weeks, it really doesn't take more than two. So we decided to go ahead and purchase tickets in faith, believing that God would provide all that we needed uh, for the rest of, of Audrey's paperwork. And, and uh, so we, we purchased our tickets January the 8th, and we waited. And the Pope came through about a week and a half later. It's a very Catholic country. And so when the Pope came through, he was there for about five days, and they declared a five-day public holiday. The city shut down. Our cell phones even were not working part of the time because of his visit. And, and so as soon as he was gone, on January the 21st, it was Wednesday. Still haven't heard anything about that passport. And I called the U.S. Embassy, and, and she looked it up. She said, oh, yes, I see that you were approved on January the 8th. You really need to allow four to five weeks for that process, please. And I thanked her, and I hung up the phone. And I don't do a whole lot on Facebook. In fact, if you look me up there today, I won't even be there. But uh, that day I put out a, a post and said, uh, please pray for us. We're waiting for Audrey's passport. We're trying to fly on Sunday, and we're, 
we're under the crunch of time, and if you could pray for us to get that passport in time, we'd appreciate it. And a few people commented and said that they were praying, and, and so we continued to prepare for our, our travels, and Friday we still had no passport, and it was decision day. If we didn't get the passport Friday, we would not be flying on Sunday, so we had to make a decision. I called the U.S. Embassy. You can actually only call the U.S. Embassy about a passport on Monday, Wednesday, or Thursday between the hours of 1 and 3. I was outside that window, so I called the emergency line and, and spent about an hour circling between machines and people and listening to messages, and finally, I found someone on the other end of the line who answered the phone and said, passport services, and I explained that I was looking for the passport for Audrey Regan. And she started searching, and it didn't take her long before she said, I found it right here. I'm matching it right now with the consular's report of birth abroad, and I'm going to take it to the courier for you. And the family was watching, waiting to see if we were going to be able to fly. And I'm giving them the big thumbs up. We made it. We've got it. And uh, meanwhile, she tells me on the other end of the line, I've taken it to the courier service, and they said they will guarantee delivery for you by Monday or Tuesday. I said, well, we have tickets already to fly on Sunday. Is there any way that they can rush that? And she said, I'm sorry. They can only guarantee it for Monday or Tuesday. And I thanked her and hung up the phone, and we started talking about what we could do to rush the courier ourselves. We decided to contact them and see if they would hurry things along for us. And as we were talking, the lady from the U.S. Embassy actually called me back and said, I've talked to the courier service. I explained your situation. They will guarantee delivery for you on Saturday afternoon. I thanked her, and we hung up the phone, and we were praising the Lord and breathing a sigh of relief. And then we started working on step five to get that foreign visa. And we contacted our agents that usually help us with the visa process and asked if there was any way that we could get this visa as an exit clearance on our way out of the airport. Uh, and, uh, and they said, no, you actually have to get that at the main immigration office downtown. They're actually only open Monday through Friday. We're happy to help you with that, but we'll have to wait until next week. And so we started working our networks of other missionaries and other organizations who have had babies in the Philippines and maybe have been through this process, and, and uh, they would try and help us. And they, they said, well, maybe you can call the airport immigration office. Someone there can probably help you. Just get the name of who it is that you talk to, and then they can uh, be sure you have that when you go through immigration. And so we did. We called the airport immigration office. I spent 15 or 20 minutes on the phone with them explaining our situation, asking in as many ways as I knew how, is there anything that you can do to help us? We're trying to get a visa for our daughter. We were happy to pay the fees there. She spent about 15 or 20 minutes on the other end of the line telling me, no, there is nothing we can do to help you. I'm sorry. It's the way the system works. You have to get that at the main immigration office downtown. I hung up the phone, and we realized that we were going to have to change our tickets. Scott did some quick research on that online, and, and we discovered that was going to cost about seven dollars to $10,000, which was not in the budget. So we decided that maybe we should split up. We were willing to do that. Scott was willing to fly with the other four children on Sunday as planned, keeping our current tickets, and Audrey and I would just change our two tickets and fly midweek once we had that visa in the passport. It was not ideal, probably especially not for him, but uh, we decided that may be our only option as far as being able to work this out. So we, we uh, started contacting the travel agent, and the travel agent said, I'm sorry, you're too close to your departure date. We can't change your tickets. You're going to have to call the airlines. So Scott called Cathay Pacific, and they said, I'm sorry, your ticket is owned by American Airlines. We can't change it for you. You'll have to call them. And, 
He called American Airlines, and Americans said, I'm sorry, there's a government restriction on your ticket, and we can't change it for you. And uh, he hung up the phone, and we kind of laughed at the irony of the situation at that point. I think I put another post on Facebook and said, well, it seems that the government does not want to let us leave, but they also won't let us change our tickets. And uh, finally, we got, we got all of those people in a conference call together and realized that there was one office in Manila that would change our tickets for us, and they opened at 8.30 in the morning. By this time, it was about midnight, so we went to bed, and Scott called them first thing Saturday morning, and, and uh, there was no answer because they're only open Monday through Friday. It became very apparent we were not going to be able to change our tickets, and we decided that perhaps we should just go ahead and keep those four tickets, the five tickets, for Scott to fly with the other four children, and Audrey and I would fly on Wednesday, but we would just not show up. We would cancel our two tickets. He called different travel agents there in the Philippines, and they were not helping us very quickly, not responding, and so we tried the airlines, and they said, oh, if you do that, if you try to cancel two tickets in your booking and two of you don't show up, you will lose the entire booking. At that point, we gathered the boys together, and we said, it's time to pray. And, uh, and uh, we got together in a circle there and prayed together, and I explained to the boys the situation. I said, you know, if we get on this flight, it's really because God has opened the doors for us. If we don't make it, it's because he has another plan. Aidan, our oldest, actually echoed that. And he said, you know, I was reading in my devotions, and it said, if things don't work out the way you want, don't get angry because God has another plan. And, and we were thankful to hear his insight in the midst of that situation and, and yet also hoped that that really didn't mean changes in our own plans. Uh, but we continued to move forward after we prayed together. Then Scott went out to meet the courier and pick up that passport and get it in hand. And I continued to to pack and to network and see if there were any other possibilities out there. And, and uh, I contacted some friends who have other visa agents, and, and they contacted me and said, really, you have to go to the main immigration office downtown. That's only open Monday through Friday. There's nothing open on Saturday to help you. No immigration office is open today. And a few minutes later, I got another text back that said, you could go to the airport and just try and, and maybe pray for a Christian immigration officer to help you. And we started to wonder if that was the next step of faith that we were going to be taking. And, and Scott called our local pastor. He's very well networked in the community. And, and the pastor contacted the vice mayor who contacted somebody that was pretty high up in immigration. And they said, just go to the airport and someone there in the immigration office can help you. And, and so we decided that was the next step. We were ready to go. Got into the van at 2 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning. And by the time we did that, we were told, you probably will make it, you'll just have to pay a bribe. Just know that you're going to have to buy your way through this. And our prayer on the way to the airport was that God would pave that way smoothly. I wanted to do it right. I was willing to talk my way through, but I wasn't going to buy my way through. So we, we got to the airport and we started looking around for this immigration office and it was nowhere to be found. So we found the information desk instead and, and asked the lady there. And she said, oh yes, the immigration office is on the second floor just inside check-in. Scott looked at me and he said, we can't check in. We don't have that visa. And, and uh, we explained that to her, and she said, well, she could call the immigration office for us and see if maybe someone could meet us right there, come down the stairs. And, and uh, there was no answer when she tried to call. So she tried a couple more times with no success and asked us to step aside. We found a spot in the hallway and kind of parked ourselves there for a while. And as we were sitting there in the hallway on the floor, I saw that there were people coming in very clearly dressed as immigration officers, clearly marked on their uniforms, and 
So we started stopping them and asking them, can you help us? We're trying to get a visa for our daughter. And, and they would say, no, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. It's the way the system works. You really have to go to the main immigration office downtown, and they're only open Monday through Friday. And, and even when I tried to explain the urgency, that was always the same answer over and over. And so Scott went back to the information desk and asked her to call again, and she did. And, of course, there was no answer again. And he came back and said, I don't know, should we just give up and go home? And we decided that we would give up and go home when the flight left. So we stuck around for a little bit longer. And as these immigration officers kept coming in, and we kept stopping them and asking them, and they kept telling us, no, we can't help you. And, and then there was another one that came in, and I asked him, is there anything you can do to help us? And he said, I'm running late. I've re I've, you've got to make it fast. And I said, well, I explained our situation as quickly as I could. And he said, well, you really have to go to the main immigration office downtown. They're only open Monday through Friday. And, and uh, he said, but you could go to your airlines and see if someone there can take you to the immigration supervisor. I've got to go. And he took off. He was late for his shift. And I looked at Scott and I said, if he's running late, he's probably the last one that's coming through here. Maybe that's really the next step that we have to take is to actually go to the airlines and so we did. We went to the airlines to check in, and they said, oh, I'm sorry, you're too early for check-in. You need to wait two more hours. So we parked in the hallway again for a couple more hours and waited and prayed and went back to the airlines. And by that time, there was a line that we stepped into, and, and they saw all of our children and all of our bags, and they escorted us right to the front of that line. And, and I took the passports, and I handed them to the lady at the check-in counter, and she started looking through them and matched up our tickets, found our tickets in the system, and, and uh, she started to print the boarding passes, it seemed. And so I thought, well, I don't know if we're really getting on this flight, but I, we might as well get the seats we want. So I asked for the bassinet seating for the baby, and, and uh, she said, okay. And she granted that request, and the next thing I knew, our bags were going off this way, and we were going off this way with six boarding passes in hand and raised eyebrows at how easy that seemed to go. And, and uh, we went to the next step and paid the airport tax and rounded the corner to immigration. And I started looking at those officers and wondering how many of these I had stopped on their way into the airport that morning and which one might happen to forget that conversation with the white woman with all the children. And, and uh, as I was trying to size up the situation, I noticed there was one man in, in the middle of the room who was sort of directing the traffic. And and, I, and he directed me to this line over here, so I followed that, and I handed over our passports again to the immigration officer, and he looked through them, and he matched up our pictures with our faces, and then he said, do you have immigration cards? And I handed over our stack of immigration cards, and he matched those up with the passports, and then he looked at Audrey, and he said, do you have an immigration card for the baby? I said, no. He said, is this her first time to leave the country? I said, yes, it is. I knew what he was looking for. I knew he was either looking for an immigration card for Audrey or a stamp in her passport or a receipt of some kind, and she had nothing. And so I didn't know what was going to happen at that point. He sort of checked through everything again and scratched his head, and he took everything over to the cashier, and he motioned for me to go to that window. So I followed over there. And the two of them, as he handed over all of our things, he, the cashier and the other officers sort of exchanged words. I could tell there was something in there about immigration and baby, and they weren't real happy. And, and uh, so the cashier came to his window, and he asked me the same questions. He said, do you have an immigration card for the baby? I said, no. He said, is this her first time to leave the country? I said, yes, it is. He said, well, you're going to have to come with me to see my supervisor. And as my heart was pounding and my 
I was shaking a little bit. I, I thought, well, that was the next step I was told to take. And the family was on the floor behind me, praying probably. And I, I followed to meet him in an office somewhere. And he met me right there at the corner of his booth. And so did the immigration supervisor. And it turned out that immigration supervisor was that man that was directing the traffic that day. And uh, he looked at me with the kindest eyes I've ever seen on an immigration officer. And, and he said, when do you come back to the Philippines? I said, May 16th. And he looked through all of our things and he nodded. And he looked at Audrey and he smiled and he took everything back to the cashier and he nodded at the cashier and the cashier took all of that and he started to process things into the system and he said, uh, did the supervisor explain to you what the issue was? I said, no, he did not. And he, and he started to explain it to me, but he didn't get very far. And then his voice just sort of trailed off and felt like maybe it wasn't worth explaining. And he, he took his calculator and he started to punch in the numbers. At this point, we had to pay a fee. And the fee was for those of the six of us that have immigration cards posted right there in the window, 2,880 pesos per person. So it was about 20,000 pesos for the six of us, which is about 500 U.S. dollars. And for Audrey, who's just starting the process, we were told to anticipate that it could be equally as much. It could be another 20,000 pesos or 500 U.S. dollars. It all has to be paid in cash. So I'm counting out all of these bills. And he turned that calculator around in the window and showed it to me, and it said 11,240 pesos. And as I looked at that number, God said to me, I just want you to know who it was that did this for you. And Aiden came up behind me and he said, Mommy, what's going on? I said, Aiden, I think we're going to make it. And he said, then why are you crying? <laughs> and I, we walked through immigration and we cleared security. And I just, I told Scott, I said, I feel like we could do anything right now. <laughs> not only did I not have to pay a bribe, didn't have to buy my way through. I got a discount at immigration. <laughs> I didn't even have to talk my way through. I answered every question straightforward and honest, and I was never questioned back. God paved that way smoother than I ever could have imagined. I knew that he was honoring our steps of faith that day that we were taking as a family. And as a family, our faith grew by leaps and bounds that day. And I knew by the time I got to that window that there were hundreds of people around the world praying for us. And some of those people are right here in this room. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for praying us home. <laughs> Thank you for the prayers that you pray for your missionaries. You never know what difference that might be making in their lives. Well, one of the reasons we, we had to get back by January 25th is because we were starting a, a deputation tour of the Indianapolis district on February 1st. So we were trying to get back so that we had time to gather our, our thoughts and our, our winter clothes and, um, and kind of adjust to the time a little bit before we got started. So we were really wanting to get back for that and didn't want to have to cancel that, that tour. And so we made it, obviously. And then we were speaking on the district, and we met with a, a church on uh, Friday night, the next week. And we were talking, uh, we had dinner with NMI president before the service, and just talking. And, and she told us, she said, you know, last sat, uh, Saturday night, the Lord woke me up and said that I needed to pray for you. And for, especially for your travel. And, you know, if you know about the time difference, Saturday night here is Sunday there. 
And uh, it would have been around the time that we were at the airport trying to, to get through immigration. So we are so thankful for the prayers of, uh, of our churches back here and our supporters back here. They uh, mean more than you know. And uh, we do thank you for uh, praying for us as the Lord prompts you to. And, um, you know, you just never know uh, what kind of situation we might be in right at that time. Some of them are like this immigration saga, which, uh, you know, really pales into compa- in comparison to so many other things that happen. And one of the one of the things that happened in this last two year term that just dominated the uh, everything we did really was this typhoon Yolanda that Jill mentioned. You probably saw it on the news. I mean, it was the largest one of the largest typhoons in the world to ever make landfall and actually, you know, come through uh, where people are living. Uh, the winds were over 200 miles an hour and it just was major devastation and uh, you know you've probably seen here in the U.S. we we have some of the similarities to that when we have Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Sandy you see the devastation that those cause Uh, but just think about in the Philippines where the infrastructure is not quite up to what it is here and also in the Philippines uh, we're on a bunch of islands so uh, while here you can if you're if you're smart you'll go inland um there, there's nowhere to go. It really just goes right across the entire island. And so everybody on the island is affected in some way. And uh, Typhoon Yolanda was, caused major devastation and uh, in the area of Tacloban, which was kind of the poster child for this uh, devastation. If so if you're watching the news and saw anything, you probably saw the city of Tacloban where ships were brought into the city and are still there because they can't get them back out in the water now. Uh, just, but so many buildings and schools and houses and lives were lost in this devastation. And I had a chance to go out there last year, a few months after it happened, just to see for myself what the devastation was and to, and to be a part of a, a group that was meeting to sort of start strategizing on how best we can respond. Um, and while I was out there, um, I had a chance to worship at one of our churches, the Dulog Church. And Dulog was one of the nine churches that we lost in that uh, typhoon. Uh, We had nine Nazarene churches that were completely destroyed to the ground. Several parsonages, several other churches, several homes of our church members that were uh, either destroyed or or affected in some way. But Dulag was one that was destroyed. And and while I was there, I was talking to the pastor, Edgar. And Edgar just happens to be the district superintendent for this area as well. And Edgar is probably in his 60s or so. And he and his wife have been serving there a long time. And uh, he was telling me about what it was like to live through this typhoon. And it was amazing to hear his story uh, as, he, as he told me about uh, uh, what, they, what was happening during that time. You know, his church, Dulog, it sets maybe 200 yards from the ocean. It's a beautiful location. Uh, when you're worshiping, you know, you can hear the ocean waves. You know, it doesn't get cold there, so they don't have the, the walls or more open-air um, churches. So you can hear the waves. And, you know, it's just a beautiful area. And uh, the parsonage is just on the back wall, just on the other side of the back wall of the church where he and his wife live. And he said, you know, when they, they started giving warnings about this typhoon, they told us that we needed to go to the hills because this typhoon was also going to bring a surge. But he said, you know, I didn't know what a surge was. I didn't know what that meant. I wish they would have used a different word because surge didn't mean anything to me. You know, and he, he said, we've been through so many typhoons that we, we just figured, you know, we can, we can make it through this one. Philippines is prone to natural disasters. They have uh, volcanoes, active volcanoes. They have earthquakes. There was an earthquake that hit another area of the country just one month before this that was also devastating. And they all, but then they also have about 25 typhoons a year 
that come within inside the Philippine area um, every every year. Not always the same place, not always as strong, but a typhoon nonetheless. So everybody in the Philippines has, has lived through a typhoon. But uh, he said, you know, we, we just figured we could probably do this one. We've done it before. So they stayed in their house. And he said, you know, pretty soon while we were in our house, we started hearing the winds pick up. And they got stronger and stronger until we heard the roof of the church blow away. And we realized this was no ordinary typhoon. And we started hearing parts of the church start to crumble. And, uh, and there they are in their house, wondering if their house was going to fall on them. The water started coming in. That was the surge. The surge of the, the waves started coming inwards. And he said the water started filling up the church and then eventually started coming into our house. And we knew that we did need to go to higher ground. But, of course, it's too late at this point for them to try to go anywhere in those winds and rain. So the best they could do is they got up on top of their table. And so he and his wife climbed up on the table and were praying that, you know, that, that water would go down. But pretty soon the water was all the way up to the table and they were in the water again. So they climbed up on another object. I didn't remember what he told me, but something about head high. But they got up there and waited it out there, praying that the water would go down. And pretty soon the water kept coming and it was as high as they were. And the last place they could get, you know, was up in the trusses. They didn't have a ceiling. They just had open trusses there. And he said he and his wife climbed up into the trusses. So they're right up against the roof. And, you know, he said, there's nowhere else to go after this. This is as high as we can go. So as they got up there and were praying again that this water would go down, he said it was about two hours. And the water came all the way up to their feet. They were really, he could have reached it, he said. And then eventually the water just started going down. And they were saved. But there was thousands who weren't. And Edgar has been devoting his ministry and life to helping the people of our, our Nazarene churches on those islands to recover. And uh, one of the things that the Nazarenes do great is compassionate ministries. And we have been responding since day one to this and are still responding today. Uh, you know, when, when the disaster hits, all these organizations came in. When it's that big, you know, the United Nations is coming, World Vision, Samaritan's Purse, all the organizations you can think of. Red Cross, they were all there, and it was great to see the world respond and work together to respond to these people. And, uh, you know, the, the Nazarene Church was right there, too, because we were there when it, when it hit. And so we actually were being used by a lot of these organizations. Some of our church grounds were being used for, their, for them to set up their tents and things. But, um, you know, a year and a half later, most of them have, have pulled away and moved on to other disasters, Nepal and other places, which is great. They did great work while they are there. But, you know, the Nazarenes are still there, and we're still responding to the people and trying to help them get their lives back. When there's something that devastating, you can imagine it's going to take a while. So there's several phases we go through in this response. And so those early phases is just uh, helping them through that survival mode. You know, there's no drinking water. There's no food. There's, they're looking for loved ones. And so we just go in and try to respond to those needs by trying to uh, – we, we have – Systems that can clean water, just about any water, and make it drinkable. So we're trying to give out drinking water. We're trying to give out the um, crisis care kits, if you've ever helped pack those. We're giving out crisis care kits to people and just trying to meet them, meet their needs at that level. And then, and uh, when I was there, what part of what we were doing is planning the rebuilding phase. We started that February, March of last year, and it was set to go until August to try to rebuild these nine Nazarene churches. And that was all done through the giving of Nazarenes around the world. So many gave. Maybe you gave too. And we just, that was, that's what enabled us to help get these churches rebuilt. Um, and so we were, we started this rebuilding phase and we had said, you know, August is the end of that. We have to stop. And the reason why we have to stop is because that's when the typhoon season starts again. So we don't want to be building during a typhoon season. 
But after that, uh, we moved on to a another phase where we're trying to, it's a livelihood phase. We're just trying to restore livelihood for the people. This is fishing communities, farming communities. So we're out trying to help the farmers get their land together again, get, get ready again. We're trying to help these fishermen. You know, most of them lost their boats in this. So we actually, through Compassionate Ministries again, we were able to find guys who could help us build boats. And so we were out building boats to get these guys back out into the water so they can start catching fish and uh, selling it to make money again. And, uh, and since then, we've been just working at uh, really ministering. I mean, all through this, we're ministering to people spiritually and psychosocially. But uh, now we're really focusing on getting into their, their lives and to their, their um, hearts and about the things that really matter. You know, we've been, like I said, we've been ministering to them all along, but, you know, now we're really, you know, you're starting to see Bible studies form and churches form and things like that, and it's really been neat to watch that. You know, a lot of schools were destroyed, so we've actually built a school, and we've had Filipino uh, volunteers from all over the country. You know, we've had working witness teams and people from the U.S. and Australia and, and the U.K., they've come over and they've helped, but we've seen just an outpouring of Filipinos coming from all over to come and volunteer to help their fellow men. And they're coming to teach in these schools. And it's not just Bible school, vacation Bible school. This is reading, writing, math, all that. And, of course, we're teaching them about Jesus as well. And like I said, we've had a lot of, of positive things come out of that and Bible studies coming out of that. And I want to show you a video uh, real quick just now to just give you an idea of what that devastation looked like and then a little bit also about what the church is doing and how we're responding